0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Okay, guys, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Amos chapter 8. If uh, you don't know where Amos is, find Jonah. And, uh, I'm sorry, find Joel, take a right. If you hit the New Testament, you're too far. Back off a little bit, and it's right there. It's towards the end of the Old Testament It's a minor prophet, so it's small, and we are actually going to finish it tonight, which is exciting. We've been in Amos for uh, nine weeks, something like that, and uh, we have two chapters left. We're going to just go ahead and tackle them both tonight, finish it up. Next week, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. if you guys haven't read Nehemiah, it's pretty cool. It's a little different than Amos. It reads more like a narrative, so it's going to be more of a story. Um, but you guys aren't going aren't to want to miss that. Jeff will be kicking that off next week. Uh, but in the meantime, we have some work to do in Amos, so let's pray. We'll finish it up. God, I just, uh, tonight, I want to start by um, inviting you into this place. Um, God, I I just know by now, Lord, that I can't do this without you. <laughs> Lord, I'm really not interested in anything that my mind would conjure up to say. Today, I'm really only interested in what you, Holy Spirit, would speak through. God, everyone in this room, Lord, I know is hungry, whether they realize it even for not or not. Lord, I know they're hungry for truth. I know they're hungry for life-transforming gospel truth, God. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that you would make us uncomfortable in our seats, Lord, with truth, God, truth that would drive us to see you as greater, see you as bigger, see you as more merciful, as more gracious, as more holy, as more grand, Father. I pray that the truth would cut into the deepest parts of our hearts, Lord, the parts that we try to hide from you and stay away from you, God. I pray that through this book of Amos, through this anointed and prophetic book, Lord, that is so ancient and so old, Lord, that our hearts would be revitalized tonight. That we would be reminded of the complexity, the simplicity of the gospel. So, Lord, would you feed us tonight, God? We're hungry for you. I pray that we would go away even more hungry tonight. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Amos chapter 8 has the funniest opening sentence. It's it's kind of hilarious. Um, Get this. He says, in in verse 1, he says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Okay? Amos says, he says, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, a basket of summer fruit. <laughs> I think, I think that's, that's pretty funny. I mean, come on. It's just, let's just be honest here. What do you see? A basket of summer fruit. That's what's there. Kind of a funny opening line. Anyways. Okay, so for those of you guys that have been uh, maybe uh, haven't been here for the majority of this or just been some of it, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background for Amos. Um, Amos was a sheep herder, a shepherd from the southern parts of Israel. If you guys don't know by now, Israel at this time, 8th century BC, almost 3,000 years before now, uh, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Amos was a shepherd that lived in the southern parts of Israel and was called to go to the northern kingdom where Jeroboam II reigned as king and to preach this uh, message, this prophetic message of uh, wrath to come and judgment and to call the people of Israel to repentance. And he does it well. He does nine chapters of calling to repentance, which we've been looking at every single week. And uh, if you don't know by now, too, Israel, the northern kingdom that this book was prophetically spoken to, was in a great time of prosperity. They were in a great time of wealth, of affluence. They were blessed physically, okay? They had it made, they were doing well. It seemed that nothing could touch them, it seemed that they had all kinds of, all the comforts they could possibly need. And here comes Amos with an extremely unpopular message that was not accepted. But he preaches it anyways, which I love. Amos was just a good old boy, a shepherd from the south, not affected or tainted by the political uh, issues going on at that time, and he steps in, and we're going to finish tonight, Lord willing, his message. It's going to be a lot, but don't worry, I'm not going to exposit every single verse. We're going to take a big chunk, and and we're going to look at a few different parts, but I will look at it verse by verse. So, bull of fruit. Verse two, he said, Amos, what do you see? He said, I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere and then silence. Now, I want you to take that image of the bowl of fruit that opens up, that Amos sees, that the Lord shows. I want you to just set that aside, okay? We're gonna come back to that. Okay, bowl of fruit, put it in your save file. Boom, there it is. Verses four through seven are the last sort of indictment that we see against Israel. So if there's some of you here that maybe haven't been here for all of them, this will be a good refresher for you because Amos says a lot of the same same things over and over. But there's actually four things that the Lord calls Israel out on specifically, things that they were doing that were going against his law, And these are things that characterize the society of Israel. Okay, so four things, if you're taking notes, four things that characterize the society of northern Israel, and four things that God is speaking out against them. And for each of those, I would like to to sort of see how that easily can apply to our culture that we're living in today. So four characteristics of the society of Israel. Number one, we see in verse four. And that is that it's a society who puts profit before compassion. So if you're taking notes, number one, a society who put profit, money, cashola, before compassion. We see that in verse four. It says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Okay? So they are putting profit before compassion. Compassion has left their heart. They've exchanged it for greed. Compassion has left their heart, they've exchanged it for greed. Now it's interesting to me in my uh, humble 26 years of life that I've lived, um, and even just understanding biblical truth, I've noticed a pattern. And that is that a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times the people that have the most stuff, the most wealth, the most affluence, material possessions, are a lot of times the least generous. You guys ever notice that? A lot of times the people that have the most stuff are the least generous, and a lot of times the people that have the least stuff, the least possessions, are the most generous. I don't know, I don't, it's really kind of an interesting thing to think about. I watched an interesting documentary about a group of guys about my age that went down to the South America, to some of the poorest parts, um, I don't remember exactly where they went, um, to l- attempt to live off a dollar a day. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but a pretty large amount of the world population lives on a dollar or less a day. So they set this whole thing up to go and live in this hut for like three months on a dollar a day. What was so interesting about this was that within like a few weeks, they had already made friends with the neighbors, uh, poor, poor neighbors, right? And the neighbors at one point invited these, you know, four or five white kids who, yeah, they were poor, but really they still had money at home, they could fly home at any time, invited them into their house and fed them the best meal they would eat all year. They just hooked them up, blessed them with all of this food, all of this stuff, and these people have nothing, and these guys were just like overwhelmed, like I can't believe that these poor people would be so willing to invite us in and to give us everything. Isn't that just so interesting, how sometimes the people that have the least give the most? Why is that? Because the more that we have, the more that we love our stuff, right? The more that we have, the more that we think it's important, the more that we hold on to it, the more that we value it. It was really cool this week. Um, I was uh, I was sick last Sunday. Was that last Sunday? Was that the Sunday before? I don't remember. I was gone one week, one Sunday, and I was sick, and I got back from that, and under my door, someone had slipped a, a note, and I opened it up. It was this really cool little card, and it was from a couple in our church, um, and I opened it up and it was like hey it was just a, like hey we're praying for you we're so sorry you're sick and we hope you feel better just really sweet card bless my heart but the couple that it was from is just going through like this horrible season right now they've just lost some of their kids they're going through all these health issues they're in and out of the hospital they're like in the worst season ever and they're taking time to send me a card cuz I had a flu and I'm just like I can't believe this I mean how cool is that how amazing is that it's sometimes the people they're like the last people in the church that I would think would take the time to to, to give me a card and say, they hope I feel better. But sometimes it's the people that have the least, sometimes it's the people that have the the least amount of possessions that are the most generous and the most giving. I just kind of found that interesting. I was really blessed by that. Now this isn't poverty theology, okay? Let me just say that. This isn't poverty theology. This isn't saying go out and be poor. It's more spiritual than being rich. It's not. If you're rich, that's not a bad thing. If you're poor, that's not a bad thing. It's about being generous. It's about giving of what you have in a way that God would call you to do. The more that you think you have, the more that you think you're worth, okay? That's the reality. And now in Israel, in this time, about 3,000 years ago, Israel started to think they were something because they had a lot. The more they had, the more that they thought they were something. And, and instantly, they began to sacrifice their compassion for their profit, okay? So, we'll, so we see that in verse four. Now the second thing, the second character we see in their society was that they had put profit before worship. So not only had they put profit before compassion, they put profit before worship. Now look at verse five. Now they're saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? It's interesting here because they're saying when are the worship practices, when are the spiritual aspects, the worship times gonna be over with so we can go and sell and make more money? So we can go get rid of our grain. So they're sitting in church and they're, and they're just thinking about when can I get out of here and go sell more stuff to make more money. They're putting their profit before their worship. Now, all of us get distracted, okay? All, I, I find myself every Sunday morning thinking about lunch. It's just like this thing, okay? And that's not sinful, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm hungry, you know? Um, I'm not saying that it's wrong to think about other things and worse. But what is it in your life right now Beware of this thing. What is this thing that, that instantly always comes in the way of your time with the Lord? We all have a thing, okay? We all have a thing. For some of you, it's your business, your business owners, and you just are consumed. Your mind is consumed with your business. For some of you, it's, it's your kids. For some of you, it's your, your new car that you got. For some of you, it's a hobby. It's, um, I can't wait to go golfing next weekend. I can't wait to go rock climbing, whatever it is. Beware of those things that become more important than your worship to God. This is exactly what they were doing in Israel. They're sitting in their worship services, and all they want to do is get out and go make more money, okay? That's all that they want to do. They just want out. Jesus said what? Seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. know that seems like such a simple thing if you've been in church, but that principle is life-changing. It's life-changing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, seeking first the kingdom of God doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be more wealthy, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be more blessed financially, but what it does mean is it puts your things in their appropriate place. Because when you seek the kingdom first, you begin to see all other things other than the kingdom itself as less valuable. And therefore, everything falls into place and you're more happy. Jesus also said, What good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul, right? It's interesting to me in our culture, especially in my age group, how little we think about eternal things how little we think about, maybe it's because we just think we're gonna live so much longer, but especially the secular culture. I remember um, when I worked in retail having a conversation with a guy that was my age, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and I was asking him some hard questions about truth, and like, how do we know, uh, you know, how do we know what's true? And, and it was just a really cool opportunity, but the interesting thing, I asked him what he thought about it, what do you think about this? And he's like, I don't know, I've just never thought about any of this stuff before. And he was like 24, he never thought about anything eternal. He would never thought about anything religiously. He just kind of gone, gone through his life. Paid such little heed, such little mind to things of spirituality, things of eternal weight. And it's just interesting in our culture. So this is what had happened in Israel. They had become so obsessed with their profit, so obsessed with their bottom line, that they had forgotten worship. Not only did they put profit before compassion, not only did they put profit before worship, but number three, they put their profit before honesty, Look at verse five. Saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain in the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. So in verse five, we see that they're putting profit in front of honesty. It's kind of interesting, you know, I mean, I, I, we really worship and idolize the, the, the idea of capitalism in our country. We think that that's, that's the answer. That's how we got to be, you know, this great country or whatever. But capitalism, the idea of it only really only works if you have people that have somewhat of a moral center, right? It only works if you have people that have somewhat of a moral center because if they don't have a moral center, then what happens is the rich just keep getting richer and the poor just keep getting more oppressed and the richer are getting rich because they're oppressing the poor, Because they can pay them cheaper wages. Because they can take advantage of other people. And that's the way that it seems to be even going in our culture, doesn't it? We have this 1% that makes more than half of the money in our country. And they keep getting richer and richer. And they have their hands controlling a lot of the political things. It's kind of interesting. The same thing was happening in Israel. There was really rich and really poor. And the people that were really rich were really rich because they oppressed the really poor. They were putting profit before honesty. They were doing it at... The stake of their integrity. Now, this is something that all of us have had to face. Okay? Not all of us are, are um, you know, CEOs of major companies. Not all of us um, oversee giant financial uh, you know, companies or whatever. But all, all of us have turned in a time card. All of us have done our taxes. All of us have at some point probably been a manager over somebody. And the reality you have to face is that you will more than likely be more successful in this world if you're dishonest. I mean, would you agree? You, You will be more successful financially. You will get farther ahead in life if you are dishonest, if you lie on your resume, if you cheat on your time card, if you, whatever it is, fill in the blank. If you compromise your integrity for profit, you most likely will be richer. But the question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to trade that in? What's that worth to you? Are you willing to make less in order to not compromise your integrity, even on the small things? Um, I've been watching a lot of documentaries. Uh, We watched another documentary the other day. My wife and I, we've just been watching a lot of them. but about Lance Armstrong, it was really interesting. I don't know if you guys have, have, have heard about him. So uh, he was a big deal, right? He, he was like this, this m- machine. He just won like six Tour de France's or whatever, and, and he was just doing all this crazy stuff. And then it just came out in a matter of years ago that he had been doing steroids, right, this whole time. And it was interesting watching this documentary This goes over his whole life. And the interesting thing was he didn't know how to settle for who God made him to be. He didn't know how to settle for who God made him to be. He had to push it farther than was physically actually possible for him to be. He wasn't content being where God would say, here, this is what you can do. So he took drugs to push himself farther than he actually should have gone. He was dishonest. He compromised his integrity, and then it snowballed into this giant thing where it was like, the scandal of the century. I mean, it's just this crazy thing. But ultimately, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as Israel. Israel's not willing to be poorer in order to keep their integrity, so they're going to trade their integrity in order for that extra profit. So not only have they traded their compassion for profit, not only have they traded their worship for profit, not only have they traded their honesty, but also they've put profit before People. Look at verse six, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So this was an illustration that was used earlier in Amos 2. And what he's basically saying is that people are so poor and the rich are so rich that the poor people are taking out a loan from the rich people just to get a pair of sandals, okay? And then when they can't afford to pay that loan for the sandals back, the rich person collects by taking them into slavery, so they're literally buying them for the price of a pair of sandals. This is how corrupt and how crooked it had gotten. So they've put profit, they've put money, they put material things in front of and above even people. Now again, it's interesting in the work environment how the higher you get in the corporate ladder, the higher you get in position, sometimes the easier it is to forget that there's real people working below you. You start looking more at the number sheets than you do at the people that are actually making the sales. I worked in sales, so I know, how much pressure is put on you from the corporate level to make sales when you work in a sales job. And you start to look more at your numbers and look less at the people that are there. And then you start to be much less giving, much less gracious, much less loving for the people. No, you, you can't take the day off. No, you need to come in today. No, you need to get your numbers up, so on and so forth. And it's just amazing how quickly you can put profit before people, especially in those, um, those settings. So those are the four things that God specifically is indicting Israel for. Now, moving on. Looking at verse 7, all the way through chapter 9, verse 12. And we're going to read this. It's a big chunk, so don't zone out on me. But I just want to say this is the longest and the harshest, the most brutal chunk of God's judgment that's going to come. Okay, Um, it's, It's the last part of it in Amos. And what I want to do is I want to just read it as a whole, make a couple comments on it, and then we're going to move on to the end of the book. There's a lot of things in here that were already said and we've already talked about. So here we go. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in the broad daylight. So he's talking about an eclipse here. He's talking about blocking out the sun. Verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Verse 11, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst or of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And in that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. So in other words, it's the sons and the daughters that will ultimately pay the price, right? Much like uh, the way it's always been. (laughs) The sons and daughters usually end up paying the price for our sins. In verse 14, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Chapter 9. We're like flying through it, right? I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out. And take them, and if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Verse 4, if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them, and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? In other words, I called you out to be special, I called you out to be specific, I called you out to be my son, and are you now not just like the uh, the Gentiles? Are you not now living just like the Cushites, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from uh, Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Okay, there it is. Now, a couple comments on that and then we'll move into finally the good news in Amos that we finally re- will reach. Uh, it is there. Um, a couple things about judgment, okay? What we just read was a lot of judgment. A lot of God saying here's what's gonna happen. But one thing that I want to point out specifically, we've talked a lot about judgment in these last eight or nine weeks. Hopefully we've unpacked that enough to, to where this doesn't seem like an unfair, brutal book. Hopefully we've unpacked it enough to see that, that ultimately God's grace is at work here in this book. But one aspect of judgment I want to point out is that judgment is primarily separation. judgment is primarily separation. What I mean by that is a lot of what is said here and prophesied here by Amos that God is going to do against Israel is not so much God actually coming down and smiting them like we might picture this giant white hand coming out of heaven and just pulverizing Israel. It's not so much that as much as it is actually God just simply removing himself from the equation and allowing things to go down the way they would go down if he wasn't involved. Does that make sense? God's judgment is not always him pulverizing. A lot of times it's just simply him removing himself from the situation. Sometimes God judges by giving us what we ask for, right? (laughs) Oh, you really want that? Okay, here you go. Let me know how that works out for you, right? I really want to marry that person. I really want to do this thing. I really want that job. I really want to go on this trip. Okay, here you go. Israel did that, remember? We really want a king. After hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel blowing it and doing the wrong thing and God raising up judge after judge after judge to lead Israel, Israel's like, hey, we should have a king like the other nations because that's working out great for them, right? And so God says, okay, but I get to pick him and he picks Saul, right? Mighty Saul. And Saul was a pain in the neck. I mean, that was a bad thing. It was not a good king for them. He caused much more damage than he did good. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for. Be careful what you ask for. But ultimately, a lot of times, judgment is simply separation. Romans 1, 24 says, Therefore God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie right so god literally says says god literally gave them up to their own lusts so a lot of time judgment is god just saying here you go tell me how it works out for you <laughs> let me know how life is when i'm removed from the equation Because guess what? There is no real life. There is no true life apart from God himself. Now look at our text a little bit more closely. Verse 11 and 12. He says in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. We just read it, but it probably just got lost in all of that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Now listen. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So it's not that God's necessarily gonna remove the bread, remove the water, remove the physical things, but God is not gonna speak. He's gonna withhold his word. Verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So what God is essentially doing in that is he's saying it's not so much that I'm gonna, again, pulverize you with the white hand from heaven, it's that I'm gonna remove my word from you. Now, if any of you guys have ever been in a season like that, it doesn't always mean that you were in sin or something, but if you guys have ever been in a season like that as a Christian where you haven't heard from the Lord, it stinks. God, I just miss your presence. I just wanna be with you. I just wanna feel you. And this is what the Lord is saying. He's gonna remove himself. Now, if you remember, there's 450 years of that from the last book of the Bible, Malachi, to the first time we see the next prophet step onto the scene, John the Baptist. 450 years of silence where God did not speak to his people. And that, in it, of itself, was a judgment. The interesting thing, I don't know if you guys know this, but the world is being judged even now. Did you know that? The world is being, it started at, Adam. See, when Adam fell, the world fell into, a, uh, fell into a state of wrath, where things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Did you guys notice, did you notice that out there? You know, things aren't quite the way they're supposed to be. And believers and non-believers right now are all subject to the wrath, ultimately, of a fallen world. We're all stuck here, living in a fallen world with sin and decay and physical bodies that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. We're all stuck in it. We're all stuck here. Now, for the non-believer, they have this ache in their heart that they don't know why. That ache is judgment, that they've been separated from God. And they don't realize that that ache is because they're missing something. They just know that they're aching. So they end their life. Or they get on drugs. Or they do whatever. There's countless things in America people do. Because they're aching for something more, because they're separated from their purpose in life, their ultimate purpose in life. It's judgment. Now, secondly, about judgment, the judgments of God are often worked out in the unrecognized routines of life. Do you know that? Alistair Begg says, he says, God's intervention in time is not usually in supernatural, supernatural explosions of his wrath, but rather in everyday occurrences that subtly remind us that life without him is impossible. Subtly remind, just little things. Maybe it's that uh, overwhelming guilt that you feel after moral failure. That's that feeling of God saying, yeah, you wanted that? Well, here it is, and here's what it really feels like. There's a reason you feel like garbage after you do something God didn't want you to do. He uses that to remind you, to pull him back to himself. It's maybe the depression that accompanies idolatry when you begin to worship and put something that's a creation up on the shelf rather than the creator and that emptiness that comes with that when that thing lets you down. My position at work, my talent in my hobby, the thing that I'm known for, you make that your God, it lets you down, that stinking feeling, that emptiness that comes from that, that's a judgment that's God allowing you to feel what that idol can give you so that you realize that he's better, so that you realize that he's greater. That insecurity that comes after pride lets you down. When you think you're the man, you realize you're not. That's God allowing you to feel the pain of the insecurity that follows pride because guess what? Pride is insecurity. Same thing. It's interesting. The leper, leprosy... It's an interesting disease. You actually, you lose your nervous system. Do you guys know that? Your nervous system begins to shut down, and you don't feel things anymore, and you begin to rub your ears and your nose and your your face completely off. That's why a lot of times people would look just so crazy, because they wouldn't feel, they couldn't tell that they're hurting themselves. God gave us a nervous system that tells us when something hurts, Right? And what God's doing with Israel is he's saying, you guys are leprous. That's why leprosy is a sign of sin in the Bible. You guys are leprous. You don't feel anymore. You're just living in a morality. You're just living focused on material things, crushing the poor, and nothing even seems to faze you because you're leprous. You're rubbing your face off. You don't even know it. So what God says is, I'm not gonna just come down and smash you. I'm gonna allow you to feel what it's like to get your nervous system back. And I'm gonna let nations come in and take you over and pull you out into a foreign land and burn your city. I'm gonna allow that to happen because that's the only way that you're gonna feel what you should be feeling right now because you've completely shut off from me. That's what God's doing. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's finish it up. Amos chapter 11. In that day, the Lord says, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it, and will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Thank you, Amos, for ending on such a good note. (laughs) Okay, you guys ready? Three, quickly, three gospel conclusions from how Amos ends. Okay, three gospel conclusions. We're gonna move them through them quickly. Now, flip with me. If you have your Bibles, flip with me back to chapter eight, verse two. I want you to look and notice a contrast here. When we first started reading today, tonight, In Amos chapter 8, verse 2, Amos said this. He said, what do you see? He said, I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. Listen, I will never again pass by them. Never again, he says. And then look at verse uh, 7, same chapter. He says in the second half, he says, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Man, this is depressing, right? Amos is saying that God's never going to forget these things, that He's going to forsake them. But then all of a sudden, in chapter 9, verse 15, same book, same author, everything, He's saying that He's going to plant them and that they'll never again be uprooted? This seems confusing. Seems contradictory. That in one chapter, the Lord would say, I'm going to withdraw myself from you and never, I'm never going to forget the things that you've done, the wickedness that you've done, the sinfulness that you've done. And then a chapter later, He says, I'm going to plant you in your own land and you're never going to be uprooted. Seems confusing. Seems contradictory. Well, so does the gospel, right? <laughs> Who can figure that one out? Okay, so I'm this wretched human that was born into sin. Not only am I born into it because my father Adam did exactly what I would have done, I've also chosen to live in a lifestyle of sin. I've chosen to turn my back on God. I've chosen sin over him multiple times, worshiped the creation rather than the creator multiple times, lived, ate, sleep, and breathed in a state of war with God just like all of you have, and yet he in his infinite grace and his holiness chose to pay for that sin. Now how does that make any sense? Doesn't really, does it? So what's the issue here? Okay, the issue is not with the old covenant. Okay, the issue is not with the old covenant. The issue is not with God. We know that. The issue is Israel. Israel is the issue. They're the problem. And what's not the solution? Okay, what's not the solution? Not another king. Not another greater David. What's the solution? It's not not more Jews. It's not. uh, It's not just a more religious, more spiritual nation. It's not America, that's for sure. What's the answer to the issue? The solution is what God had to do was he realized that he could not make covenant with man. He tried. God tried, he made covenant with Abraham, he made covenant with David, he made covenant with Moses specifically. The Mosaic covenant was the covenant which Israel lived under. This contractual agreement that God says, I'm gonna love you and I want you to love me back, and Israel broke it. Not only did they break it, they tromped it under the ground and threw it in the sewage. That's what they did to God's covenant. Continually, over and over and over again, they broke it. Not only did they broke it, they d- demolished it. The old covenant is broken. It's garbage, not because of God, not because of the covenant itself, but because of the other half of the person in the contractual agreement, Israel. broken. So what is God to do? What is God to do? God says, "If I can't make covenant with man, I'll make covenant with myself." And that's exactly what He did. Have you ever thought about that? Who is Jesus? He's God. God says I'm going to come out of heaven in the form of a man and I'm going to enter into covenant with myself and then I'm not going to give a contractual agreement to my bride I'm just going to give them grace. I'm just going to give them what I purchased on the cross because if I give them any requirements they're going to blow it. God entered into covenant with himself. Now how does, okay, how does that deal with the contradiction that we saw where God says, I'll never forget this? Well, God never will forget sin, does he? God will never just wink or turn his back on or walk away from sin because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's in, he has indignation against sin. So he doesn't turn away from it. He doesn't turn his back from it. He doesn't ignore it. He deals with it. He bore it on the cross. He took the wrath of God completely. Totally, and dealt with it. So, what Amos is saying is true. Yes, God will never forget what Israel did, but He could pay for it. He can pay for it, He can absorb it. This is good news. Secondly, second gospel thing I just found here is from inescapable wrath to inescapable love. I love this, this is quick. Verses one through three of chapter nine, if you look back. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, a mountain, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. God is saying my wrath, because I'm an all-consuming fire, demands justice. And there's nowhere that you can hide Israel from my justice. There's nowhere that you can dig down to Sheol. You can go up to the heavens. You can climb Mount Carmel. You can swim to the bottom of the ocean, but my justice, my holiness will find you. How terrifying is that? In Revelation, we see something similar, right? When they say they're praying that the rocks will fall and bury them so they don't have to deal with the wrath of God as he judges an unrepentant world. That's so depressing, Sam. Here's the good news. In the new covenant, Because of Jesus, we find a very similar type of language. Listen to this. Tell me if you've ever heard this. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from his wrath? No. From his what? From his love. I'm so thankful that as New Covenant Christians, we can sit here and say, there is no place I can hide, not from his wrath, because Jesus dealt with that, but from his love. It doesn't matter how far I dig, how high I climb, how far I go down to the ocean, his love is there. I cannot get away from it. If I could do nothing to deserve or receive his love, I can do nothing to leave it. <laughs> Praise God for that. And lastly, this whole bowl of fruit thing. Okay, let's let's talk about this. The basket of fruit in verse one. You guys tracking with me? You good? Okay, we're, we're almost there. Um, so in the beginning of, of, of our teaching, Amos, God showed Amos this basket of summer fruit. What is that all about? Essentially, what God is doing there in that image is he's saying, this is what you've given me. This bowl of fruit. And obviously, it's not cutting it. God's not pleased with this. A lot of times Israel uh, would bring sacrifices such as that to God as an offering, a bowl of fruit. Here it is. God says, this is not going to cut it. It's old, it's moldy, it's stinky, it's got flies buzzing around it. It's not anything pleasing to him. Now know this too, fruit speaks of the end of an age. Do you guys know that? In the the New Testament when Jesus, uh, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Remember when he says that? He says that before he goes to the cross. Now, he's talking about the end of an age there because what do you do at the end of an age? You harvest. At the end of the season, you harvest. Now, I know enough about fruit to know that after you harvest the fruit, that season's over. Right? That season's over. But what's interesting is when Jesus rises from the grave and he comes back, he changes his language. He doesn't say, Hey, the harvest is plentiful. Go harvest. He says, Go plant seeds. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say go harvest, he go plant seeds because God is not interested in anything that we can grow. See, Amos sees this bowl of fruit that represents the worship that Israel was giving and God says, I'm not interested in that, I don't want that because it came from a specific vine. Now, really quick, in John chapter 15, if you can go there, this is interesting. John chapter 15, Jesus having this discussion with his disciples, he says in verse one, he says, I am the true vine. Okay, there's a word there. I am the, what, true vine. Now when something is the true something, it implies that there was something that's not the true something. When something's the true something, it means there was something that wasn't the true something. Israel, and if you guys know this, historically Israel was referred to as the vine. Israel was thought of as this plant that God had planted in the midst of the Gentiles, that it would grow up fruit to to, to the nations and be the light of the world. But that vine grew fruit that was rotten, didn't it? It says also in the New Testament that Jesus is like a seed that when it falls into the ground it first must die so that it can grow up again. And then what does it say in 15 verse five? I am the vine. Jesus says and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So Israel tried to be the vine. They tried to produce the fruit. They couldn't do it. Jesus in the new covenant is the new vine. And what are we? just the branches. We're just the sticks. Man, we're that little piece of wood tubing that does absolutely nothing except for connect the fruit to the vine. It's all we have to do. That's exciting. God's like, yeah, look at how badly Israel was a vine. We're not letting you guys be a vine anymore. I'm the vine. You guys are the sticks. You hold on to the fruit. Abide. That's all we got to do. Hold on to him and let him produce the fruit. God's not worried or concerned about the fruit you can produce, he's worried about the fruit that he can produce through you because you're just a stick. Isn't that cool? In the Old Testament, Genesis, there was a story about two sons, Adam and Eve had, Cain and Abel. Remember that? And those two sons brought an offering to God. One offering was from the ground. He gave Cain, remember, he gave his plants and what he had cultivated from the earth and then the other son, Abel, he just brought, brought a lamb and he sacrificed the lamb, and for some reason, Cain's sacrifice was not what God wanted. And Abel's was. Was that because Abel was so much more spiritual than Cain? No. Had nothing to do with them, it had everything to do with their sacrifice. See, Cain was trying to bring what he produced. Here, God, take what I made. Look what I've cultivated from the ground. Look what I worked from the sweat of my brow to give you. And Abel says, here's a lamb which one was received? Abel's was received because it represented the lamb, Jesus Christ, the ultimate lamb, the eternal lamb. And when we come to God, we're just a stick. And we say, God, no, no, here's not, I don't, don't take my works. You don't want my works. You don't want my basket of fruit. It's moldy. It's stinky. You want the fruit you produce through me, the stick, namely the blood of the lamb. That's all we do. We say, here God, it's all you. You did it. You made covenant with yourself. You produced the fruit. I'm just the stick. That means we do nothing. Yes, if you get that, that's the point. We're just sticks. We're just here to enjoy and absorb and bless God for his grace and in turn to worship him for that, amen? Let's pray. Would you guys stand with me? just close our eyes. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God, I thank you tonight that we can sit here, stand here, completely unworthy, completely undeserving, of the grace that you've given us, but that you don't even see us right now. You see Jesus' perfect atonement that has been imputed to us and given to us and is covering us. And Lord, tonight we give you the sacrifice of a lamb that we didn't even slaughter. We give you the sacrifice of the lamb of the Son of God that was given on behalf of us because that's all that you want. And Lord, we just pray that in return for this amazing grace that we've understood tonight that we would worship you, God. That our lives would reflect lives of justice and worship and morality and integrity. Not because we're earning our salvation, but because we're thankful for salvation. Lord, we hear that so often, but would you drive that deep into our hearts. That the very core of our being as Christians would be run out of thankfulness for what you have done for us, God. Free us tonight from our works, from our legalism, from our pride, from our sin. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for staying a little late. We'll see you Sunday.